Let me pray as we uh, explore Jesus's emotional life and what that means for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent us such a saviour who has become fully like us in every way and yet who can save us from sin and death and who can help us in all our struggles. And we pray, please would you help us this morning to see more of his beauty, his goodness, his glory. And would you change us more into his likeness, we pray. Amen. How do you feel about emotions? How do you feel about emotions? Do you feel uncomfortable with strong emotions and awkward about displaying certain emotions? Are you more likely to embrace every emotion unquestioningly and let them all out in public and go wherever they lead? Or are you somewhere in the middle, somewhere between those two extremes? It's Fascinating how Western culture, in Britain and the US at least, has gone from one extreme to the other over the last hundred years or so. In my grandparents' generation, born in the 1920s, the stiff upper lip was not just a cultural stereotype, it was the reality in many ways. Cool, unmoved reason was widely seen as the key to finding truth, knowing truth. Strong displays of emotion were widely frowned upon and thought to display a lack of self-control and a weak mind, hence the phrase, boys don't cry. And a kind of stoical, unflappable response to hardship and grief was encouraged, hence the phrase, keep calm and carry on. But now the pendulum has swung so far the other way that emotion is often prized above reason and fact. Not that we can know fact in an entirely unemotional way. We, we see this in the, the belief that if I love someone and they love me, it must be all right for me to sleep with them. Even though if that logic is pushed to its natural conclusion, we will soon be abolishing the age of consent and legalizing paedophilia polygamy, and maybe even bestiality. Similarly, we see it in the phrase, whatever makes you happy. Does drinking to the point where you throw up and pass out on a Friday night and then wake up with a terrible hangover the next morning make you happy? Then by all means, continue. Does following a religion that gives you no assurance of God's love and forgiveness make you happy? Then by all means, continue. But interestingly, hidden under that phrase, whatever makes you happy, is a lingering assumption that some emotions are bad. Like being sad, or hurt, or grieved. So anything that triggers those emotions must be avoided at all costs. All of which to say, we have a complicated relationship with emotions, individually and as a society. But I think broadly speaking, 
we could probably say of most of us, we are either tempted to underplay them or to overplay them and their goodness and their value in shaping our lives. But the incarnation of Jesus does neither. It shows us a different way. During the last three weeks of Advent, we've been exploring a handful of the many ways that the incarnation dignifies our humanity, particularly our bodies, our limits, and our dependencies. Remember, incarnation literally means to become in flesh. It speaks of how Jesus was and continues to be God, but he entered into created time and space 2,000 years ago by adding a human body and mind and will and spirit to his divine nature. And as Hebrews 2 verse 11 says, he was made, fully, he was made like us, fully human in every way. And as Hebrews 2.11 says, he was not ashamed to do so. Not ashamed to call us family. Which means he took on the full range of proper human emotion. So I want to finish this mini-series by exploring how the incarnation dignifies our emotions and challenges them. Because in becoming human, Jesus neither underplays nor overplays their goodness and value, but he shows us instead what healthy emotions look like. The right emotions in the right proportion in any given situation. The right emotions in the right proportion in any given situation. Here's how we're going to do it. Firstly, we're going to take a, a brief survey of how the Gospels portray Jesus' emotional life. Secondly, we'll ask how the incarnation encourages, encourages us to embrace our emotions. And thirdly, we'll ask how it encourages us to question our emotions. And finally, we'll think briefly about what helps us to grow in healthy emotions. And before launching in, I just want to acknowledge that this difficult topic is made even more complicated if we struggle with regulating our emotions because of physical or mental health issues. And that's okay. None of us are going to have perfectly Christ-like emotions this side of heaven. And we have a God who is more patient, more compassionate, more forgiving than we might dare to imagine. So he won't throw his hands up in despair or fix us with a hard and disappointed stare when our emotions don't match Jesus's, perhaps can't always match Jesus's. But he won't leave us struggling where we are either. With that said, how do the Gospels portray Jesus's emotions? We're going to begin with John 11, with the passage that was just read. This is a, a wonderful, a famous passage for so many reasons, but it's also deeply revealing about Jesus's emotional life. In verses 3 and 5, we see that Jesus loved Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. You might think that's a, something that doesn't need stating. But he did not come into the world as a dispassionate, detached Buddha-like figure. 
he loved people. And he wasn't embarrassed to show his affection publicly in such a way that Mary and Martha and Lazarus knew he loved them. What about verses 14 to 15? Jesus speaks of his gladness or his joy, depending on your translation. But bizarrely, his joy is connected to Lazarus's death. How can that be? Well, it's because he knows that something great is about to happen. Not just that he is going to raise a dead man, as astonishing as that is, but his disciples and many others will believe when they see it. They will believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life sent by God into the world, and they will have eternal life because they believed. That is the greatest gift of all. It's right for Jesus to be overjoyed at that thought. But he also shows that joy should be in proportion to the significance of the occasion. It would be right for him to feel more joy about many people receiving eternal life than about one man just receiving back his earthly life for a few more years. Even if that man is a close friend. And it's still right for Jesus to feel joy, even in the midst of profound grief over death. One emotion shouldn't cancel out the other, but they go side by side. So Jesus experiences joy that is proportionate and joy that continues alongside harder emotions. And then in verses 32 and 33, I think we see compassion. We've already seen it in verses 21 to 27 where Jesus comforts Mary, uh, Martha. But I wonder if we see it even more with Mary. All that Mary can say to Jesus is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She doesn't go on to say like her sister did, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She's so overwhelmed by her sense of loss that she can't think of anything else, it seems. Perhaps she has lost or temporarily forgotten all hope in Jesus. But he doesn't rebuke her for a lack of faith because he is compassionate and he knows how weak our faith can be. Equally important in verses 33 to 35, he displays deeply troubled emotions and grief. Now, there's a, a lot of debate about exactly what 30, verse 33 means. The Greek word behind deeply moved can also express anger. There's a suggestion in the words behind troubled that Jesus was deliberately stirring up his own emotions. I can't give you a definitive interpretation of what's going on there today. But we can say this much with confidence, I think. Jesus' own emotions are, at least in part, responsive to the weeping of Mary and the Jewish crowd. It is because Jesus sees them weeping that he is deeply moved. And at least in verse 33, he can't simply be angry with them for a lack of faith because he then weeps with them in verse 35. 
Jesus is not happy, not at all happy, about the alien presence of death in this fallen world and the misery it creates for the people he loves. And he is not afraid to show his grief publicly. We might add that once again, his emotions are proportionate. Because what should sadden us more than death? So, in summary, Jesus shows, just in these few verses, love, joy, compassion, grief, possibly anger. And if we kept looking through the Gospels, we'd see other emotions too. Perhaps his clearest displays of anger are found in John 2, where he drives the money changers and the cattle sellers out of the temple in Jerusalem. Or Matthew 23, where he lays into the hypocritical and blind Pharisees with the seven woes. His zeal for God's glory and for righteousness and mercy inspire a righteous anger. On the other hand, one of his most surprising moments of spirit-inspired joy is found in Luke 10, in verse 21, where he praises his father for hiding the coming of the kingdom of God from the wise and the learned. Jesus rightly rejoices in the proud being brought low and the humble being exalted, and he can do it without a trace of smugness. And he doesn't just display grief, but fear in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he says, where he sweats drops of blood, so great is the horror of the cross. And when he hangs on the cross, abandoned by his disciples, rejected by the Jewish people, and forsaken even by God the Father, he experiences the most profound loneliness that any human being has ever felt. So Jesus doesn't just have the full range of human emotions, but he has felt them to their greatest highs and their their deepest lows. And he's neither ashamed of it nor embarrassed about it. Isn't it a relief that we have a saviour who has felt the things we feel? Doesn't that make him truly sympathetic, able to understand us and help us? And isn't it comforting that he dignifies such a a tricky but inescapable part of our existence as our emotions? With that in mind, let's move on to our second question. How does the incarnation encourage us to embrace our emotions? Firstly, as individuals, then as a church. Individually, if we are more inclined to be suspicious of strong emotions or feel awkward about them, perhaps the emotional life of Jesus is a gentle corrective. It shows us that we are not meant to be emotionless, 
Sure, each of us has a different emotional bandwidth. Some of us will naturally have bigger emotions all across the spectrum and feel everything with a greater intensity. And some of us will have a narrower bandwidth and our emotions will fluctuate much less over, over the course of a day or week. Probably even more so if we're on antidepressants, which often have that effect. And those differences are okay. We're not all meant to be carbon copies of each other. But the incarnation does show we are not meant to be emotionless. So we have to dispense with that idea that you know, the, the best people are the ones who are utterly unflappable. And similarly, we're not meant to suppress certain emotions like grief or loneliness or anger just because they are hard and complicated. Sure, strong emotions should never override our need to obey God's word or believe his promises or exercise godly wisdom. Jesus' submission to his father, even in the emotional anguish of Gethsemane, shows us that. Strong emotions don't excuse sin or folly. But when our emotions are rightly shaped by a heart that loves the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates, then they are a good and vital part of our humanity that should enrich our daily lives. They help us to experience more fully just how good it is that God has created us for friendship, for relationship with himself, with other people. Like when we feel the deep joy or contentment or thankfulness of Perhaps a moment of Sunday morning of deep intimacy with God or intimacy with friends and family shared through a, a deep conversation or a tight hug or one of those precious meal times where the laughter just flows and flows. Emotions help us experience more fully the beauty of God's creation. Like the sense of wonder and exhilaration that many of us feel when we climb to the top of a big hill and we look out and see the world spread below us in its, its vastness and its beauty. Or the sense of awe we might feel looking at a, an insect like an ant and realizing it too has a perfectly functioning nervous system, digestive system, eyesight, so many other intricate parts, even though it is so tiny. It is such a perfect piece of engineering. And emotions help us to experience the full weight of the sadness of sin and suffering and death in the world. As intruders which should not be here. Intruders which destroy the beauty of what God has made. And which eventually destroy us. Being wronged by someone you trusted or losing someone you loved should hurt. It's not how the world's meant to be. And we wouldn't feel the full weight of that if we didn't have emotions. So emotions enable us to experience life with a, a richness and a color that would be impossible if we were just brains on sticks. As, as Graham Bynum said in a, a really excellent book on emotions, they, are, they enable us to experience life in technicolor as opposed to black and white. Wouldn't life be so dull without emotions? 
They even help us understand something, and I want to be careful here, of the inner life of God himself. Because there, we, we have to be careful because there is not a one-to-one -one correspondence between our emotions and God, or indeed anything about us and God. He is uncreated and self-existent and outside of time and space. He is not like us in so many ways. And yet, our emotions are something he can pick up on in his word to describe something of how he sees the world. Our emotions are good. They are an essential part of our humanity. We might even say they are a gift because of how they enrich our lives. So for the more cautious, maybe we should be quicker to embrace them or at least to explore them and to hold them up to the mirror of Scripture rather than simply suppress them and ignore them. It's because emotions are such an essential part of our humanity that more harm is done than good when we suppress them. Much better to bring them into the open and, and deal with them with, with the help of God and his people and, whenever necessary, medical and psychological professionals. So if you feel wary of emotions, or at least some emotions, could you ask God for the courage to embrace or at least to explore them a bit more freely? And could you ask one or two trusted friends to help you do that? And as a church, let's not feel embarrassed by displays of emotion when we gather for worship. On the whole, I think MRC is quite accepting of differences of temperament here. But I think our default position is, is less emotionally expressive than many churches in this country and globally, because over 50% of us come from a pretty reserved culture. So to love each other well, we need to be mindful of our differences. Let's not look down on those who are more or less expressive than us. It doesn't necessarily mean that they love Jesus any more or any less. Just a different way of showing. Let's ask for God's help to be graciously accepting if someone else's expressiveness makes you feel a bit uncomfortable. Or if you are that very expressive person, let's ask for love and sensitivity to know when possibly to rein it in a little so we don't distract others. In other words, the words of Philippians 2, verses 3 to 4, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests. And above all, let's not think that church gatherings should express only one kind of emotion. In Jesus' relationship with his Father, we see... We see reverence, we see awe, we see exuberant joy, we see lament. Could go on. And our gatherings ought to include all of these things too. Because our emotions should vary as appropriate to the reality of our lives on any given day. And as appropriate to, to what we are singing about or reading about or praying about or talking about in our gatherings. 
as a church, let's not feel embarrassed by a range of emotions in our services. Thirdly, how does the emotional life of Jesus encourage us to question our emotions? Why even ask that question? That might seem quite countercultural to some of us. Well, it's for the same reason that we explored a couple of weeks ago, thinking about the effects of the fall. Sin has affected every part of our beings, not just our bodies, but our emotions and our intellect. So we no longer feel things quite as we should. We might respond with disproportionate emotions, like me getting overly annoyed when Clara has spilt her milk for the third time in one breakfast, and I'm so annoyed I just roughly snatch her drinking straw off her and make her cry. Or on the flip side, not feeling grieved enough when a close friend has lost a loved one because we're too absorbed by our own problems. Sin also means we can respond with the wrong emotion to a particular situation, like feeling a perverse delight in watching a film or listening to a song that glorifies violence or sexual sin. Or conversely, we might feel a sense of disgust over something that God says is good, like when someone feels only disappointment and shame about their body. Sin means that we can respond with the wrong emotions, and at a more complex level, sin means that we can respond with, n- n- without the full range of emotions that a particular situation should evoke. So we might only feel grief about the passing of a loved one who was a Christian, without any corresponding joy that They are with Jesus. They are in heaven. Or we might only feel hurt at personal rejection when when someone refuses to believe the gospel and gets angry with us for daring to suggest it. We might not feel more grieved by surely the the far worse thing that they are doing in, in, in rejecting God. We might not be grieved for them or and for God's glory being dishonoured. So in short, sin has distorted our emotional lives, which means we should not accept any and every emotion we feel without question. Instead, we need to hold our emotions up to the mirror of the Bible, of Scripture, to see how our feelings compare with those of Jesus and, at their best, his apostles. It's often only by looking at Jesus' healthy emotions, his perfect emotions, that we will begin to see where ours are maybe inadequate or possibly plain wrong. Which means that we need to know our Bibles if we want to grow in healthy emotions. And it's worth asking as we read, what emotions is Jesus displaying for us in any given passage? Or Paul, as he speaks about his love for the churches and his delight in them and his burden of concern for them. Do I share these emotions, we should ask? And are my emotions in the same proportion? These are good questions to ask ourselves. 
And when you begin to suspect that there is a, a particular emotion that you feel isn't healthy or isn't proportionate, please don't try to just figure it out on your own. At the very least, talk to God. But it's so often it's, it's so helpful to talk to another trusted person, whether a spouse or a close friend or maybe one of the elders, because when we are really wrapped up in our own emotions, it's really hard sometimes to see the wood from the trees and to understand quite what is going on. And when we talk to God, most of you won't need me to tell you that the Psalms are full of the rawest emotions. God, in his kindness, has given us words to express our emotions and lay them before him, and examples of how to process them well. So let's be quick to use them. So in summary, the incarnation, it encourages us to embrace our emotions, but with a healthy degree of skepticism, to, to question them too. Finally, what about a few suggestions to, to help of how we can grow in healthy emotions? What helps us? Well, we've already said that getting familiar with the emotional life of Jesus and others in the Bible is important. And that, that won't just humble us, by the way, and show us where we need to repent. It should encourage us too, where we see ways that our emotions do align with Jesus's as we grow. But there are many other ways of feeding and encouraging healthy emotions, simply by exciting us for what is good. Here are a few suggestions that other people have given to me this week. Music. Music is a, a gift of God that excites all sorts of emotions. And Christian worship songs at their best connect a particular truth with healthy emotions in, in the response that the music evokes. And they do it in a way that gets under our skin. So could you sing hymns to yourself in the shower? Could you listen to worship music over breakfast? If you haven't come across a genre of Christian music that you like, could you at least ask other people at church for some recommendations? There's quite a breadth out there. Another suggestion is watching the, uh, the YouTube and Netflix series, The Chosen, which depicts Jesus's life and character in a, a very striking, moving, powerful way, I'm told. For many people, it's, it's heightened their love for Jesus and a sense of wonder at his love and his compassion, and his self-sacrifice, and his holiness. It also shows us the breadth of his emotional life in a very vivid way. Could you watch The Chosen? Another suggestion is talking to people on the mission field, signing up for their prayer updates, watching YouTube videos about how God is at work in different parts of the world. There are so many, many stories out there of what God is doing that will excite us about his love and his power and his mercy, or perhaps break our hearts afresh in a way that they need breaking for the plight of lost people who haven't heard. And for me, one of the simple things is just regularly getting outside into the countryside or looking up at the sky on a starry night, cheesy as it sounds. It's, that is a reminder that I need 
of God's glory in nature. And it's one that fills my heart with wonder and joy and thanks. All of this is to say, there are lots of things that can stir our hearts and help us to grow in better emotions, loving what is good. And then, on the flip side, naturally just becoming a bit less comfortable with things we probably shouldn't feel. Why don't we pray now that the Spirit would grow us in these kind of emotions? And then after we've continued in prayer and sung, we're going to do something else that Jesus has given to stir our emotions as we share the Lord's Supper. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you neither despise our emotions nor reject them, but have embraced them. And you have shown us what healthy emotion looks like. Lord, we are, we are not sufficient to the task of identifying the depths of our hearts and changing ourselves. But Lord, would you please grow us as we, as we see more of you, as we dive into your word, as we embrace some of the other things that you've given us to excite healthy emotions. Would you grow us by your spirit? that our emotional lives would be more like yours and that we would experience life more as it's meant to be with the richness, with the vividness of full and healthy emotion. Would we appreciate you all the more as we do so for your glory. Amen.